0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, August 16th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temen. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, here's one step the Energy Department could take to help ensure grid resilience. Plus, this problem could cut off federal paychecks as surely as a shutdown. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a union contract with the Department of Veterans Affairs gets its first major update in more than a decade. VA and the American Federation of Government Employees recently ratified a new work agreement, ending a six-year standoff. VA expects the new contract will let it hire people faster as it prepares for the biggest expansion of health care benefits in a generation. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. So, Jory, what has exactly changed in this new contract?
2: What's striking about this is how little has changed for how long it took to get here to this point to a new agreement. The key takeaway here is that the VA and the AFGE are able to now bring new employees into the department more quickly. It's a faster time to hire, which is something that agencies seek government-wide, but is particularly acute at the VA. The recent numbers we've heard is the median for healthcare employees is 160 days to bring them on from the beginning to end of that process. We heard from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. He said that this new contract is really going to help the department at a time when they're trying to bring a lot of people on under the PACT Act.
0: So we're
3: looking for every efficiency we can find to improve that hiring process.
2: And McDonough said that this is going to make that hiring process a lighter lift, but he said there are some things outside this contract that the VA will have to work on internally when it comes to making that process better, faster, stronger.
1: Sounds like the union relented on what parts of hiring? That the agency has more discretion on.
2: Yeah, this tracks pretty consistently with what we've seen with some of the other agreements that the VA has made with some of the other unions. What we're looking at here is that from the time that they post an announcement, they have a shorter window to move on to that next phase. So for some agencies, that was going down from 15 days to three days. So they're really able to just go, go, go once they have qualified candidates and they can move on to that next phase in the process.
1: And looking at this whole deal, what took so long? As you said, it was stalled for six years. The time.
2: Yeah, this is one of the most contentious sagas in recent memory of federal labor relations between VA and AFGE. They settled on a tentative agreement back in April of this year, but there's a really long tail to the story. You know, negotiations stalled under the Trump administration. There were some pushbacks government-wide about official time and things of that nature in July of 2021 the VA reached a settlement with AFGE. They restored some of that official time and some other items that were sticking points for the union.
1: Right. We should point out official time means that VA employees can take total leave from their job to do union work. That amount of hours had been like cut by 90%, I think, under the Trump administration. The 2021 agreement restored that official time. Plus, they got their offices back too, right?
2: Yeah, that's a good recap of what happened in the past couple of years here. And so VA and AFGE were back to the bargaining table in early 2022. They reopened just a few articles for consideration. And so here we are today with a new addition to that master agreement.
1: And AFGE, safe to say, pretty happy about it.
2: You know, they recognize that this is a compromise Meaning that not everyone gets everything that they wanted. But we did hear from AFGE National President Everett Kelly saying that this is something that ultimately is a win win for both parties. We had a new administration
1: come in and a new secretary that listened, okay? And then when we had people that listened, then we were able to get the job done. The old crowd listened. They just didn't agree. In this case, you had the crowd listening and agreeing. Getting back to that question of growing that workforce, this is because of the PACT Act and VA growing its workforce. And by how much?
2: Well, it's hard to underestimate how much the PACT Act is creating this demand signal for new employees. This is going to be the largest expansion of both VA healthcare and benefits in a generation, and it reflects in the hiring that we're seeing at both VHA, the Veterans Health Administration, and VBA, the Veterans Benefits Administration. Both of those agencies have now the largest workforces that they've had in history. We're seeing the VHA on track with its hiring goals. The VBA now has a 30,000-employee workforce that's being supplemented by some new automation tools that they're trying to roll out to make sure that they're meeting the pace of claims that are coming in.
1: Yeah, so the VHA workforce is up by almost 5%.
2: The VHA workforce is up by 5%.
1: Okay. And meanwhile, what about the metrics for how effectively VA has been fulfilling the PACT Act? That is to say, are they getting people signed up and under benefits and into the system without a gigantic backlog?
2: Well, the backlog is something that they're dealing with here. Uh, It does add a significant workload to what the VA was already dealing with before the PACT Act was signed into law. But this is translating into real benefits, going to real people here. Nearly $2 billion in benefits have gone out the door in the one year that the PACT Act has been signed into law. And about 330,000 veterans have been enrolled into VA healthcare, specifically under that legislation. And 4 million veterans have gotten toxic exposure screenings during the regular course of their VA experience in their hospital system.
1: So the workload is greater and now VA can hire faster and they seem to be able to hire faster.
2: Yeah, that's a pretty good recap of it.
1: Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this problem could cut off federal paychecks as surely as a shutdown. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temmin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Hundreds of thousands of federal employees get their paychecks issued by the National Finance Center, operated out of New Orleans by the Agriculture Department. The whole place is in danger of meltdown because of staffing, budget and technology, even storm damage problems. That's according to a detailed study under the auspices of the National Academy of Public Administration. Here with more, former Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer, now with IBM, Margie Graves. Margie, good to have you with us, as always.
0: Thank you, Tom. appreciate the opportunity to discuss this important issue.
1: And just before we get into the details, just maybe outline exactly how this study came to be. It looks like the National Finance Center itself was reaching out for some badly needed help.
0: That is correct. The USDA and the National Finance Center in particular reached out to NAPA. Uh, As you know, NAPA is chartered under Congress to be able to work with federal agencies on their most pressing issues and to bring the expertise of former federal executives uh, that are NAPA fellows to the table and be able to help the agencies with those issues and perhaps give them the opportunity to draw upon that expertise and to develop a plan for moving forward.
1: And we should probably also review exactly for the uninitiated exactly what the National Finance Center does. Paychecks is a big part of it, but it's not the only thing they do there.
0: Well, the National Finance Center is part of the HRLOB structure that was put in place as part of the shared services approach that was instituted in the federal government and reinstituted and reconstituted with a memo out of OMB, which was done under my tenure and that of Suzette Kent, to reemphasize the importance of being able to take some of these back office functions and to automate them and deliver them in a manner that allows the entirety of the federal government to benefit. It results in reduction of cost. It results in the ability to have one center of gravity for some of these functions that is uh, very important and and helps us in that execution.
1: And you cite in that report the fact that they recovered and kept going through Hurricane Katrina, an event I remember. Uh, We had interviews on that very topic at that time. And so they have shown themselves to be resilient and effective over the decades. Fair to say,
0: that is correct, and not only effective, but I would say close to heroic in the way that the the employees stepped up, have actually addressed their primary mission in moments of crisis, regardless of what was literally swirling around them, and uh, and being able to to execute. So that is is uh, very much a uh, a hallmark of how NFC has operated.
1: What's happened then?
0: Well, I think that whenever you have a shared service, it has to be invested in and maintained over time or else, of course, there is technical debt that accumulates. There are uh, people who leave the fold and sometimes uh, they aren't replaced in a rapid manner. So there are always opportunities for investment and improvement And it needs to be done on a consistent basis, or else you get to a point where you are are, uh, kind of over the line in terms of the ability to deal with your customer, to deliver the service in an effective manner. That occurs slowly over time. It's not something that occurs overnight. And unfortunately, I think a lot of these back office capabilities are are, uh, kind of short shrifted in lieu of probably more mission-oriented or more crisis-oriented investments that have to be made by an agency and also more favored by Congress because of the immediacy of the need. And sometimes these shared services don't get the kind of attention that they need.
1: So the NFC has become, in some ways, the red-headed stepchild of the Agriculture Department?
0: <laughs> well, it's not the agriculture's primary mission. Obviously, but they have been the steward of this capability for some period of time, and they service a good portion of the federal government in a very important way. Nothing is more personal than getting your paycheck and getting your paycheck correctly and on time. And that is a very critical function within the federal government. Uh, there are other entities that provide those same kinds of service, DFAS, et cetera. And of course, they have their own challenges because I don't think this is a an issue that is simply USDA oriented. It is an issue that is ubiquitous across the federal government and shared services in general. And I think GSA is well aware of that as they try to manage the shared services ecosystem.
1: We're speaking with Margie Graves. She's now with IBM. She's former Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer and one of the co-authors of the NAPA study on the National Finance Center. And one statement early on in the report says relationships, that is with Congress, with overseers, with funders, with other partners in the federal government, with leadership at USDA, have been allowed to deteriorate. Well, somebody allowed them to deteriorate. It sounds like intervening leadership between the good years and now have let the place kind of go to seed?
0: Well, I think that they are challenged by some of the things that I talked about early on. Number one, when when personnel leave and they're not replaced, there are either leadership gaps or, or there are actually gaps in execution. And when those things happen and Couple that with the lack of investment in the IT infrastructure over time. That results in a deterioration of the actual service to the customer, and that customer becomes unhappy, and the interaction between the service delivery provider and the customer also needs to be, I guess, nurtured along the way. And that is one of the things that we emphasize in the report, is that the the conversation and the transparency with the customer, people are generally at least somewhat forgiving if they know exactly where you are in terms of uh, your ability to address the issues that they are bringing up and the ability to be able to create that. One of the primary recommendations we make, and I think it should probably be the first one out of the box, is that the customer experience, both for the customer of, of the payroll system and also the, the uh, internal employees that have to deliver the payroll is going to be enhanced by becoming a data driven organization and to to that end you are conducting surveys and constant conversation and interaction with both in order to gain the landscape the lane, the you know the lay of the land and then to make a plan to take specific action against those complaints. And when people see you actually doing that, as I said at the very beginning, they become more forgiving and they become more of your partner in this journey as opposed to adversarial.
1: Now, you can't make good music if your violin is cracked and the strings are broken. So the IT infrastructure that needs to be updated, that seems to be central to all of the other things happening, because if you don't have the infrastructure to deliver, then intentions won't get you very far.
0: You know, Tom, that's correct. USDA and NFC is not the only shared service where these issues exist. What we need to be cognizant of is that it's sort of like uh not painting your house until the wood rots and then unfortunately you have to replace the wood and paint the house. So uh, this has occurred over time as i say there are other there are reasons why investments don't get made and there may be priorities that land in front of the investment in these back office capabilities that occur. That said, we're at a point where we have got to make at least the stabilization investment in the it infrastructure i.e bringing up some modern capabilities into the equation doing some automation getting the most current versions of the types of software and systems that are in their ecosystem and and getting to a point where we when i use the word stabilize that we are on an even keel with our customer and our employees. The employees feel good about being able to deliver, the customers feel good about being able to receive an effective service. In that first phase, you're still planning for the longer term because of course you have to invest in a larger way in actual modernization and modernization initiatives are not cheap. They have to occur over time and they have to be supported by Congress. So the whole time that you are stabilizing and developing these plans and getting the right personnel in place, you are delivering small increments of of capability. You're improving your relationship with your customer and your employees. And most importantly, you are proving to your congressional leadership and to your agency leadership that the delivery is improving. Sure. And generally, when that occurs, you start to develop a trust level that allows people to have an open conversation about gaining more investment.
1: And the report says that there will be serious consequences if nothing is done immediately. So it sounds like this is pretty dire.
0: Well, yes. I mean, if you think about it, you're serving over 600,000 employees in terms of delivering their paychecks, and it's not like there's a place to migrate or that there's anything immediately available where you could offload or or uh, transition or anything of this nature. Anything that would be developed over time will take multiple years. So it's not as if there is a uh, an off-ramp. An easy off-ramp in any way shape or form because as I stated a lot of the other service providers have their own issues that they're dealing with and also I do believe that if we do this right and if we follow the you know develop the plan the vision and follow the plan the vision and create that trust as we go along that there there is a little bit of runway not much but a little bit of runway for improvement and each step along that journey, you're building that coalition.
1: Because you state that the NFC current staff does have a plan. They're aware of the issues and they have a plan to, as you say, get CX and EX better to stabilize their infrastructure and to invest in the long term. So would it be fair to say the f- recommendations of NAPA are act on that plan and Congress make sure they have the funding and the backing they need?
0: Yes, I think there are actions that are, have been taken within USDA over a period of time. This did not, as I say, occur overnight, and they have been aware of the challenges that we outline in the report. The problem is, is that you have to have alignment of, among multiple entities and stakeholders in order to move forward and address it. So uh, they're. Their uh, ability to be able to lay out the plan to state the business case to obtain the funding from multiple sources, including internally from their own leadership, from their customers, with that trust that they're building, and then ultimately, longer term, from Congress itself. It's a multifaceted approach that needs to be executed with some precision. There's not a whole lot of time to waste, but we need to to have that conversation and discuss that business case and get everybody aligned in order for us to execute effectively.
1: Margie Graves of IBM is former Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer and co-author of the NAPA study on the National Finance Center. Thanks so much for joining
0: me. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to that NAPA report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, can the venerable 8A program really be on the way out? But first, here's one step the Energy Department could do to help ensure grid resilience. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The stability of the nation's electrical grid depends in part on large power transformers, LPTs, the size of small houses. These transformers are in short supply, and they take a long time to build. The Government Accountability Office has found the Energy Department could help secure this important link in the electricity supply chain. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues, Frank Rusko. Mr. Rusko, good to have you back.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: And these large power transformers, most people have never laid eyes on one. They're, I guess, big gray things that sit in those nests of fenced-off areas you see sometimes by railroad tracks where the grid kind of comes together and goes back out again, best way I can describe it. What does the energy department have to do with these privately owned and operated pieces of equipment?
3: These large power transformers are critical for the safe and reliable functioning of the electrical grid. And DOE has a lot to do with both studying how reliable and and resilient the grid is and taking steps to promote resilience. As you know, the grid was built over many, many years by literally hundreds of small utilities, and it's all pieced together and there's many moving parts. And so it's essential that there be some central attention paid to how it's functioning.
1: And these devices, and really they are the size of a cabin, I mean, if they were hollow, you could live in one, big gray painted steel boxes. What do they do? They take the long distance transmission lines that are something like 15,000 volts and step them down for voltage for local distribution?
3: That's primarily what happens, yes. They they can either step power up or down. So what typically happens is power is produced a long ways away from where it's usually consumed, say someone's house, and they'll bring it in transmission lines, which, as you say, are very high voltage, but you can't use that in your house. You have to get it down to 110 or 220 for your dryer. And so these large transformers step down the power from the transmission lines into a usable form, usable level.
1: And do they just sit there or do they deteriorate, require maintenance and replacement from time to time?
3: Yeah, they last a long time, but they require some maintenance and care. Basically, if you're taking high voltage power and stepping it down to a level that, that you can use it, you're creating a lot of heat. So these machines are getting very hot and they have to have coolant systems So they typically are filled with some kind of oil or something that that circulates around. They sometimes have air cooling systems. And so these things can go wrong and need maintenance. Or what we've seen in recent times is uh, people have attacked them, you know, shoot a hole in them with a rifle and, you know, you drain the coolant and all of a sudden you've got a big problem.
1: Right. And the House and Senate subcommittees on energy and water development asked for this report. What was their concern about? power transformers of all things.
3: You know, these large power transformers are so large and there's so many different designs and each individual utility may have no spares on hand. So if one is damaged, you know, it can really cause problems with reliability in the power system. And so originally Congress had tasked DOE with identifying the problem and trying to determine whether it made sense to have a strategic reserve of These large power transformers, in case something went wrong with multiple transformers, could cause a major outage. So, really, one of the things that DOE found is that these transformers are of so many different designs, having been put in place by different utilities over a long period of time, that you can't just have a reserve of a generic transformer. It has to be able to fit into a specific system. And so, Congress asked DOE to study it and come up with some solutions.
1: We are speaking with Frank Rusko, Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues at the GAO. And what had they done? What did you find?
3: Yes, DOE has identified some issues and he among them are real limits in the supply chain. So if you go back to 2020, more than 80% of the transformers that, that were in operation had been purchased from foreign countries. The biggest countries that we import these large transformers from are Canada and Mexico. They're allies. We also buy them from China. And there's only a few producers of transformers domestically. And both DOE and commerce has recognized this as a potential vulnerability for, you know, security reasons. So they identified that there's these problems with supply chain. It takes longer and longer to build these things in recent years. So one of the things that we've asked DOE is to come up with a plan to address some of these There are things with labor uh, needs to be trained to be able to do this work. There are issues of just specific components. Very few people produce uh, special steel that goes into them. And DOE can take some steps to help alleviate some of these uh, supply chain issues. What steps could they take? Well, one thing is identifying where everything is and what condition all of these transformers are in. And then working with utilities... To try to make orders and have parts that are on order come in at a, at a reasonable amount of time. Another thing that DOE can do is coordinate with smaller utilities that have problems with maintaining, you know, enough of uh, of supply of parts. So if you take a small utility and you know one of these large transformers is very expensive, so they're basically not going to buy another one until the ones that they have are near the end of their life. And if you go to a big utility, they may have some spares sitting around and they have less of a problem. But DOE needs to work to try to coordinate among the smaller utilities and try to identify where are their spare transformers in the country? Are they close enough that one could be put into use at a small utility if necessary? And that's another thing they can do.
1: And just a question about these devices, which concerns me on the China question, if we have them from China, is there a communication electronics control component to them such that they can be accessed by the Internet? And then you can imagine what the possibilities there are.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That is a concern that... Most of these large transformers will be connected to industrial control systems that are connected to the Internet. And so it's definitely important to make sure that when these things are being built, there aren't backdoors put into those systems or vulnerabilities that we don't know about.
1: And what does DOE say to these recommendations to get started on this kind of inventory survey and then looking at some of the supply issues?
3: DOE said that they're doing a lot of this stuff, but they have not yet put their efforts into a plan to actually achieve a goal. So that's what we're asking. They've done a lot of work to identify the problem, but what they really need to do is implement a plan, work with the utilities, and come up with a solution that'll that'll help.
1: And is there a sense that the grid infrastructure is old in this country? I mean, sometimes you stand on a street corner and you look up at 77 wires, and I, that's literally hanging from some pole crossing the street and going this way and that. It looks really old. And the grid, you don't see as much. But are these things tending to be on the aging side and that we may have some kind of a future transmission crisis if we don't get to the bottom of these big transformers?
3: There are a lot of very old transformers in operation, and there's a wide range. So as the the demand and supply of electricity has grown, obviously they put in new equipment. And then when When old equipment wears out, they replace it. So there's there's equipment of all different vintages on the system, but some of it is very old and some of it is more vulnerable than others. The real risk is that you have multiple, multiple transformers going out at once and then you'd have a big potentially region wide issue.
1: And probably some of the really old ones might have been made in America. There used to be a company called Westinghouse. I'm not sure they even exist anymore, but was in the power transmission power generation business. General Electric maybe made them, I don't know, but most assuredly none of them do now. And so if those old domestic ones failed, there would be a compatibility problem and the utility would be hard-pressed to somehow retrofit.
3: I mean, at this point, there are so many different types of transformer that any transformer that is going to need to be replaced is going to be a special order with specifications for the particular use that it, that it's put to by, by a utility
1: yeah, it's not seventeen thousand volts in on these two terminals and two thousand volts out on those two.
3: No, it's unique to you know almost every application. So it's sure. that the lack of standardization is is a problem, and you can't really address that. It would be too expensive to sort of apl- replace that. You could think about standards going forward, and right. that's another thing that DOE may want to do.
1: Yeah, my radio shack mind here. Frank Rusko is director of natural resources and environment issues at the GAO. Thanks so much.
3: Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure.
1: And find this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Plug into the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, could the venerable 8A program actually be on its way out? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. When the Supreme Court ruled against race-based admissions at Harvard University... It opened the door to preference programs across the board, challenges to them. Recently, a federal district court in Tennessee forced the Small Business Administration to suspend applications from small businesses to join the 8A program for disadvantaged companies. For what this all means, where we're headed here, we turn to Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, what does all this mean?
4: Well, that's a great question. Folks who are familiar with the 8 program know that to apply and be accepted to the program, somebody has to demonstrate, uh, the business has to demonstrate that it's owned and controlled by one or more socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. And those terms are defined carefully in the SBA regulations. But at least for social disadvantage, there is a presumption, a rebuttable presumption that the SBA applies to members of certain designated groups. Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, uh, and certain other designated groups. There hasn't been an update to this list since 1999. They've never taken a group off the list. I'm bringing these issues up because the court points these out in its decision in this Ultima case, which let me turn right to. In Ultima, this was a small business in Tennessee owned by a white woman who uh, had a variety of IDIQ contracts with The Department of Agriculture. Slowly over time, the business noticed that many of their major contracts were being set aside into the 8A program that was significantly disadvantaging them from being able to compete. They never did apply to the 8A program, which the court did not seem to uh, put any emphasis on. But they believe that because of the rebuttable presumption, they would never have been accepted anyway so they filed suit. This was way back in 2020 uh, on the basis of a violation, asserted violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution.
1: They filed suit several years before the Supreme Court ruled in Harvard then.
4: They did. And the the Harvard decision plays into this decision a bit. But frankly, the court focused a lot more on recent Sixth Circuit precedent rather than the Supreme Court decision. They They cited it once or twice. But this is really a trend anyway against the use of, let's say, broad racial factors for preferences. It it has to be really tailored if you want to survive scrutiny these days.
1: Well, tell us more about the Sixth Circuit then. What were they saying?
4: So the Sixth Circuit and arguably the Supreme Court is is going to be roughly the same. There is a, a Sixth Circuit case that came out during the COVID era. Really, it was about the SBA's use of this rebuttable presumption anyway, because that was the way that they were allocating COVID relief funds for certain businesses. They were giving preferences based on the social disadvantage characteristic. This is as a race-based preference, according to the court here in Tennessee, requires narrow tailoring. The government agreed to that to be for this clear governmental benefit, and it will be subject to strict scrutiny on review. So It needs to be really carefully constructed for a clear government objective. Uh, And this, in the court's view, went too far.
1: In other words, if you are going to claim the disadvantage because of you are a member of a group, it sounds like you also have to actually be disadvantaged and not simply a member of the group.
4: Not necessarily. There can be, in certain instances, uh, race-based programs that are intended to remediate past biases that are carefully tailored in a way that will survive scrutiny by the court. The problem was that in the view of the court here, the 8 program just doesn't cut it for a variety of reasons. Uh, The one big reason that the court focused on, it essentially failed in every prong of the analysis, but there's no careful analysis by the government, by industry of which specific groups are prejudiced and how. It's just very generalized looking at government contracting and not looking at one industry versus another industry and only allowing contracts into the 8 a program for particular groups based on historical issues in those industries.
1: We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. So in the aftermath then of that ruling, the SBA, they didn't end the 8 a program, but they suspended applications to it. So can we infer from that that they are reviewing the structure of it it sounds like it could require some pretty profound changes.
4: It certainly could. They didn't necessarily need to suspend all applications at the moment. I suspect that it's an issue of resourcing, that they're going to have to be focusing so much on what they're going to do to the program to make it survive this court's injunction that they just couldn't continue processing applications. But they could have continued taking applications and just not apply to rebuttable presumption. The problem is that for anybody who's looked at these rules, if you don't have the rebuttable presumption, you have to do quite a bit to demonstrate social disadvantage, which takes a lot of review time from the SBA. So the question is going to be first for new applicants, what this is going to look like, and then for existing program participants, what it's going to look like. And it's anybody's guess. Current participants, this decision opens the door for facial attacks on the entire program. Like many 8A participants benefited from the rebuttable presumption, maybe most of them. And so if application of the rebuttable presumption is unconstitutional going forward or as applied, uh, rather than the, the court distinguish between a facial attack and an as applied challenge. But there's no real distinction between the two in practice. It should be unconstitutional, period. Right? If the court's decision stands up on appeal, it's going to be hard to see how the current program survives. So does that mean that the SBA is going to need to come up with new criteria, both for considering applications and for contracts, and then apply that to all current program participants, make everyone reapply? Uh, Maybe. It really might. It also raises the question about any other contractual preference based on protected class like WOSBs, right? That that will probably be a little bit easier to defend because sex-based discrimination is subject to a slightly lower level of scrutiny. Just that's the constitutional decisions that have come out over the years. And one benefit the WOSB program has is that there are actually goals. Right? Agencies are told you must or are supposed to award X percent That was something the court actually thought was important. The 8A program does not have those similar goals, which made the government's point that this whole program is supposed to benefit these classes in the view of of the court somewhat suspect.
1: Right. So the rebuttable presumption exists in the 8A program, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all preference programs or small business contracting goals or minority business or disadvantaged business contracting goals themselves are out the window. This is narrow to 8A in the way the SBA has set up 8A?
4: It is, but in theory, some of these arguments would apply to other types of programs.
1: Got it. What about, say, veteran preference in contracting, for example?
4: Veteran preferences are probably safe. It's not subject to the same levels of scrutiny, and I think the government would have a much easier time defending it.
1: It's hard, hard to rebut that someone is a veteran, I guess. <laughs> you know, if you, what others might be. You mentioned women-owned small businesses. Yeah. You think is, is fairly safe?
4: I, I'm not sure if I would say it's fairly safe. It's slightly safer. That's the one that really leapt to mind as potentially subject to attack in the wake of this decision. But you know, just focusing on the 8A program, the SBA is going to have to do a lot of work in the coming months to figure out where they want to go. I don't think they're going to jettison the program, but it's going to be a heck of a lot of work if they're going to have to fix every current program participant and reevaluate every contract that's been allowed into the 8A program.
1: And what about contracting officers that are using 8A as a basis to make awards, set asides and preferences? Could they be protested on the grounds? Hey, wait a minute. 8A is rebuttable presumption. Tennessee court said suspension going on. You can't do that. They could entangle something in a protest on that basis, I'm guessing.
4: They could. They wouldn't frame it as a protest because a lot of those types of decisions are technically protest proof. They would frame it as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, just like they did in this Tennessee case, and effectively enjoin awards to the program without actually characterizing it as a bid protest. But I think that's exactly right. Someone is likely in the wake of this decision to do just that.
1: And they can't take that case to the GAO, that you have to go to court. So there's a higher bar and greater expense to bringing the whole thing.
4: That's right, and and they will probably bring it to court in a jurisdiction that is going to be more skeptical of these types of programs. So for example, the Eastern District of Tennessee. (laughs) Right.
1: Interesting. So it's really then kind of the ball is in SBA's court now with how it will revamp if it chooses to, the 8A program, or it could appeal.
4: I assume it will appeal, but before it gets to that, there's going to be another hearing, August 31st in this case, to determine the scope of the injunction. Right now, the court did grant a generalized injunction against the use of the rebuttable presumption, period, Even though Ultima characterizes challenge as an as applied challenge, not a facial challenge in the program, but it is very challenging conceptually to distinguish between those two concepts, which the court noted. Uh, So August 31, it's going to be hearing arguments on how it should be crafting this going forward. In the interim, the SBA is trying to figure out how to continue allowing this program.
1: So it may not be, as you say, a facial assault on the program, but if it's only as applied, still, if you take out one brick from a tall wall and it's low in the wall, that wall could come tumbling down eventually.
4: I suspect it might. I think any current program participant should be doing some careful thinking about preparing an application as if they were coming at this anew, uh, arguing for social disadvantage. Follow the same characteristics that you would if you didn't have the rebuttable presumption and it is a bit onerous, but the, the regulations are there. Assume that the rebuttable, rebuttable presumption, at least in the short term, is not coming back, and you're going to have to come up with a way to justify your participation.
1: Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much for that analysis.
4: Thanks for having me, Tom.
1: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com federaldrive Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. And we'll be hosting a special panel discussion with members of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and other officials on Monday, August 21st at noon in commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Join us in person at EEOC headquarters. Be sure to register at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Pathways Program, a 10-year-old program to get young talent into the government is about to get an overhaul. The Office of Personnel Management has proposed a list of reforms to diversify the interns, recent graduates, and presidential management fellows. The government takes in each year. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has the details. And Drew, it looks like this is in line with that whole idea of not necessarily having a college degree for every federal job, but just experiences and technical education now coming over to Pathways. Tell us more about these new eligibility
5: proposals. That's exactly right, Tom. This is at least in part a focus on this larger shift that we've seen towards skills-based hiring, both in the government and just more generally in the workforce. So part of OPM's new proposed regulations would expand eligibility specifically for the recent graduates part of the Pathways program. The Pathways program has three different sections. You have interns, recent graduates, and presidential management fellows. But for the recent graduates program, those who were involved in the Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, Job Corps, or registered apprenticeship program under OPM's proposal would also be alternatively eligible for the Pathways program. The end goal here of at least that part of the regulations is to make the program more inclusive, bring in more diverse candidates on the front end, and of course, just have that greater focus on Maybe those who don't have a college degree, but would still be qualified for the position.
1: And would people who volunteered in some manner similar to, say, the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps, but not federal programs, would they also be eligible?
5: So under the proposed regulations it only lays out those couple of examples in federal programs but OPM is asking for comments or feedback on you know are there other programs that could be included in that new expanded eligibility so as of now no but it's something that they're looking for more feedback on as these regulations are open to public comment.
1: Right and on the recent graduate side then they could be graduates of technical education now under these rules if if they go through
5: Right yes that is one of the areas there and it's it's just generally looking to expand the program to include more applicants on the front end.
1: Sure. And then there are proposals about how agencies can convert pathways to full-time Fed, which I think is probably the goal of people coming in, most of them anyway. What are some of the changes OPM would like to do there?
5: So looking specifically at the internship part of the pathways program. Interns who are hired through Pathways are required to log 640 hours during Pathways, during their time with Pathways, to be able to qualify for a full-time federal position. Those hours generally have to come from work specifically in the Pathways program, but now OPM is saying that half of those hours could come from time that an intern spends either in a registered apprenticeship program or in the Job Corps. So just offering some flexibility there to count towards those hours. In addition to that, agencies would also have more time to convert Pathways participants into full-time employees. So currently, agencies have 120 days to convert those positions. These proposed regulations would give them 180 days, so about six months. The idea there is just because sometimes background investigations or vetting processes can take a long time. Sometimes it exceeds that 120-day limit. So this is just a way to give Pathways program participants a little bit more flexibility of getting into those full-time positions, which of course is one of the one of the goals of the program here.
1: And agencies that want to take in people one way or the other here, do they have to do anything different under these proposals?
5: There are a couple of different changes here for agencies as well. For one, the way that agencies set up the Pathways program is changing. So typically to be able to use pathways as a hiring authority they have to establish an mou or a memorandum of understanding with opm before they can actually get started in hiring this would kind of change that around so those who are interested in adding Pathways as a flexibility or as a program within their agency, they would just have to set their own policy for it before they begin using Pathways. The idea there is to just make it a little bit easier on the front end to actually get that program up and started. In addition to that, each agency would, under the proposed regulations, be required to hire a PMF coordinator, so a Presidential Management Fellows coordinator, if they don't already have one. OPM said essentially there's some differences in the way that agencies view that position, but this would help to streamline or make it more consistent across different agencies. So each agency would have to hire someone whether they have someone or not, or it's converting a role to someone at the GS-12 level working at agency headquarters, just, just with the goal of kind of clarifying that position overall.
1: Got it. And just as an aside, agencies like the State Department that have several internship programs, are these new OPM regulations for the programs we're talking about maybe be considered a model for other internship programs, such as those at state and other agencies?
5: That's a good question. This, of course, applies just to Pathways programs, but it's something that You know, we have seen a broader shift in government towards at least some of this goals towards DEIA, towards skills-based hiring, all that sort of thing. So yes, I could see, you know, down the line, it's possible that agencies might think about that as well.
1: These things have a way of spreading throughout the government very often. And what is OPM's overall goal here, really? What are they trying to do in the big sense?
5: The idea is to make this a better experience on all fronts. So from the applicant perspective, those who are interested in Pathways in the first place, those who actually take part in the program, they're hoping to develop some more opportunities for participants to, you know, just get get the best experience they can out of Pathways. And then also streamlining the way that agencies are able to permanently hire Pathways. And one of those that I actually didn't mention was that Pathways Program's participants could convert from one agency to another when converting to a full-time role now under these new proposed regulations. So this is kind of one area where OPM was looking to say, hey, these these regulations are 10 years old. It doesn't really reflect OPM's current values or the administration's current values on how they're trying to hire for the government. This is one step they're trying to take to make that a little bit more aligned
1: now these are proposed rules under formal rulemaking so what comes next
5: so there's going to be a 45-day comment period it's a little bit shorter than usual just because they're planning to implement this in time for agencies to be able to use it for next summer's cohort of pathways program participants they're looking specifically one as i mentioned for feedback on are there other technical requirements or certifications that can help candidates be considered eligible for the program? They're also looking for feedback on the job conversion process. And are there other programs as well for interns to use as alternative hours to count towards their hours in Pathways?
1: So a lot to take in here, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her comprehensive story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen.